Avonasa. This afternoon we return to the meditative cultivation of empathetic joy. And it's interesting how in these two practices, on the one hand, shamatha, and then the four immeasurables, that in a way it seems like we're moving in opposite directions. In the sense that, for example, in settling the mind in its natural state, we're observing thoughts, even very intimate impulses within the mind, such as emotions, desires, that we very strongly identify with. How do you feel? I feel. I feel happy. I am excited. What do you want? I want. So very strong fusion of our own personal identity, especially with these subjective impulses, but also thoughts come up and, oh, my mind is this, my mind is that. And so in the practice of settling the mind in its natural state, we do our best to release all such grasping. Whatever comes up in this most intimate domain, in our cineplex with six theaters of experience, the five physical senses and then the, the mental, the mental is clearly the most intimate, the most personal, the most inner, the one that we can identify most with most strongly. Uh, if a person becomes blind, one may, one may feel, well, but I'm completely whole. I, I just can't see anymore. A person becomes deaf. Oh, I wish I could hear, but I'm whole. Whereas if you knocked out the mental, what would be left? If you can imagine having no mental experience at all, just sensory images arising. I think one's just gutted the individual. Who's who's really, is there even a person there if it's just appearances arising? So, as we attend to the space of the mind and its contents, we seek to withdraw the tentacles of grasping, and very specifically, or including, the grasping onto, these are I, these are mine. Really, these are really mine, these are really I. Withdrawing that, and the, the phrase from the Tibetan, as one is attending to the mind, and so forth, is chutsam, viewing them as simply, merely as events. They're simply events. A thought is just a thought. There's nothing in the nature of the thought that makes it intrinsically my thought, as if it has my brand in it. And so they're just the thoughts, are just thoughts arising. The emotions are just, and they're arising independence upon various causes and conditions, none of which are an inherently existent separate self. So it's a very naturalistic way of viewing the mind, and a very non-egotistical way of viewing the mind. That whatever's arising, it's arising independence upon brain activity, upon sensory stimulus, upon the catalyzation of, of imprints of memories, and so forth. So there are myriad causes, physiological causes, mental causes, that are giving rise from moment to moment to the various mental events that are taking place. But they're just taking place. And so one is simply observing them as phenomena. As the, as the Buddha said to Bahia, he said, in the mentally perceived, let there be just the mentally perceived. Just observe what's arising without the superimposition of I and mine. So we, we, we are withdrawing the tentacles of this grasping, this self-grasping onto I and mine, even with respect to the most intimate of experiences, namely our own subjective mental experience. simply observing them arise and pass as impersonal phenomena. On the one hand, 
And then, just along that trajectory, as we did this morning, who am I if I'm not an agent? If I don't do anything, then do I exist at all? And if I do exist, do I matter? Do I have any significance? And so this morning, then, when we're probing inwards, all right, you have a sense of being an agent, of being someone, being someone who does things. Maybe you have a sense of being an agent, an agent who makes real decisions. They don't just happen to you. You're not a pre-programmed robot. You could very easily, when I'm giving the instructions in virtual awareness, you say, I don't think so. I want to think about ice cream. It's much more pleasant than whatever that you're doing. I'm, and who's going to know? Do you think I'm clairvoyant? If you spend, you know, sitting nice and upright and thinking about ice cream, ice cream, you scream, we all scream for ice cream. How's anybody going to know? You know, in other words, you can do whatever you want. And even if I knew, I wouldn't, even if I knew you were thinking about ice cream, I'm not going to come over and reprimand you, you know. So really, you are free agents here. There's no possible way I can make anybody meditate or that I want to make anybody meditate. I offer meditation, you do it. So somebody make a decision. Okay, why not? Let's go for it. Let's see what it's like. And then not only makes a decision to do it, but then carries through with the intention. All right, so who is that? Who is that? Is the agent who makes the decision and who carries through it, who then is inverting and then inverting deeply to see who is the agent and then releasing out into space and then inverting in what is the experience of the agent? Is the agent there? Is the agent as real as an iPhone? As real as a nose? I can grab my nose. Yeah? Or, or not? Is the agent somehow less real? So really we're getting down to who do you think you are? First of all, as an agent, right? Are you an agent? So, and it's obviously we're questioning that. We're questioning that. We're not giving any answers, but we are probing in. Is what is your actual experience of being an agent? If somebody says, "Oh, Mark, well done, well done," maybe you brought in your notes today, and and I saw your notes for your questions. Whoa, that's some of the most articulately best articulation of questions for meditation I've seen. Well done. That's really outstanding work. I mean, that's really quite awesome, the way you said all of your questions there, everything in order, so clearly articulated. Really, that was a jolly good show. Really. Fantastic job. You know. And then, maybe there arises some sense, you know? Oh, well, I really did something. I did it well. I want to do it well again. Good. Who's the agent? What's coming up when you're praised? Because I'm praising for something you did. Right? Oh, it's a good set of notes. Good questions. Oh, good. I ask good questions. I'm a good agent. Not a good agent. What comes to mind? What comes to mind? So it's a radically empirical question. It's not a theological. It's not a philosophical. It's not a dogmatic. Like there's one right answer. You better get it. It's really just what you experience. It's more like when you put a strawberry in your mouth, what do you experience when you bite into a strawberry? There's no right answer. It's just what comes up. Is it, ple- is it pleasurable? Is it unpleasurable? What have you. So it's like that. It's just going right into experience. All right, now, there's that whole trajectory. You see where it's going. It's going right into the very nucleus of I am. And we'll go even more deeply tomorrow morning. We'll open up another door of this cognoscopy, probing into the very nature of awareness itself.
So we're going quite deeply within and clearly with a number of questions, quite radical questions. But now in the afternoon, and this afternoon in particular, this empathetic joy, <coughs> we're taking an impulse, an impulse that is already there, we've already experienced it on many occasions. Number one, we find it very easy to take delight in our own joys, our own successes. That doesn't take much work, right? But then many of us have, well, families, some have spouses, boyfriends, girlfriends, parents, close friends, such that when you see the success of a, of a close friend, some joy, some triumph, some, some virtue, some excellence, or on the part of a, a loved one, a close friend, very easy just to smile. Oh, well done, buddy. Oh, good. Let's go out and, you know, let's celebrate. Let's have a coconut juice. You know, it's so easy to take delight in people, what? People that we identify with. A mother, what's easier for a mother than to take delight in our children's own happiness? Boy, that's about as easy as, it's easier than falling off a log, right? I mean, what's easier than that? Your own child is really happy, really happy. What? Ah, that's not a practice. That's just easy. Right? Why? It's my child. My child. Right? Somebody else's child? Two children are, are competing for some special prize. Somebody else's child gets it and your child doesn't get it. How much rejoicing then? <laughs> Don't worry, you'll do better. You'll beat them the next time. <laughs> Don't worry, you'll cream them. You'll humiliate them. Don't worry, I'll be there for you. Right, because it's my child, right? The other one is simply somebody else's child. <laughs> Who cares? Not my child. Competing with my child, that was not good. If you want to compete with my child, at least do it badly. You know, to show my child be, you know, is so excellent. So it all seems to hinge on this issue of my. My child, my spouse, my friend. Oh, does this ever happen in sports? My country? <laughs> to the World Cup. To the World Cup. Issues of country ever come up? My team. My team. Shanda, if Shanda Deva even addresses this amazingly. It's way back there. I can't remember which chapter. But this identification with athletes. And I, I know American sports a little bit. And, and a, a, a team, like a football team, like the Rams, American football. The Rams used to belong to Los Angeles. They were located in Los Angeles. But Los Angeles wouldn't give them a good football stadium. So they were bought by another another city in the Midwest, uh, St. Louis. So St. Louis, St. Louis bought the Rams. They have the same colors and the same you know same helmets with the same designs, but now they belong to somebody else, right? But it's still the same name. But if you're from St. Louis, oh, our Rams, our Rams you used to belong to L.A., but they're losers. We got the Rams. You know, go Rams. And then as the years go by, one player is taken out after another and another one comes in and one's from New York and one's from Cincinnati and one's from San Francisco and one from Tampa Bay, Florida. So you have all these replaceable parts and none of them are from Kansas City. Or what did I say? St. Louis, St. Louis. None of them are St. Louis. They're from everywhere else. And the only thing is the name, Rams. St. Louis Rams. That is my team even though there's nothing there that's even related to St. Louis, except for somebody in St. Louis bought them. So it's so wonderful how this 
the tentacles of grasping can come out to something that is obviously not even remotely in any way mine, and is always changing with replacing players swapped as all, of course, just business, buying and selling slaves. You know, but it's my slaves, my gladiators, my gladiators, kill, mutilate, beat, my team. Well, that's quite strange. Well, here in empathetic joy, back to empathetic joy, we're taking an impulse that is already there. Go Rams. Go Rams, you know. And then being so happy when the Rams win. Oh boy, our team won. It's a great thing about sports. Always 50% of the people are unhappy and 50% are unhappy. It always works out. Except for in your ridiculous European football. You can come out with 0-0, can't you? Boy, that was a bad idea. Everybody's equally unhappy. Go figure. At least the Americans knew somebody's got to win. You have to make somebody happy. And I'll leave everybody equally miserable. Zero, zero. One, one. What's that? And we watched it for 90 minutes. One, one. Why, why anybody pays money for that is absolutely beyond my imagination. I really don't get it at all. You know. And so there it is. But there it is. We have that natural impulse. And so now, if it's already there, why do we need to cultivate it? To get it out of the egocentricity of my family, my country, my sports team, and so forth, to start distributing it equally. And so here in Empathetic Joy, we attend to the joys, the successes, and the virtues of others, and in a way, we are identifying with them, but equally. So not by race, not by country, not by belief system, Buddhist, non-Buddhist, and so forth, we're extending it out equally. And if we look especially at the Mahayana literature, there's a direct invitation, a very strong encouragement. Look upon all sentient beings as being mine. In what way? Pama. My, my mother and father. All parent sentient beings. All mother sentient beings. Sentient beings. Looking upon each one as if your own mother, your own father. His Holiness, was, His Holiness was teaching, I think, just recently, I think it was in uh, Hamburg where he made this comment. It's quite really cute. He's talking about how in the Tibetan liturgy, there's this phrase, Magen Sinjin Panje. All sentient beings is my old, dear mother, my elderly mother, my old, aged mother. And you can imagine where this is coming from, that it's very common in the Tibetan tradition, young, youngish man or whatever looks upon his mother, his elderly mother, who now really needs him and so forth, and he knows that he's devoted so much time taking care of him, and just this sweetness, this warmth, this sense of connection arises to his old mother, his old mother. So it's kind of drawing on that, a natural impulse that's already there. If it weren't very common, they would use another, another analogy. But looking upon all sentient beings as being your old, your old mother, your old mother, and just see, feel what kind of not attachment so much, but just kindness and warmth and sense of closeness arises. And his, and his own and his commented. But again, that sense of my, 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 extending out now all for all sentient beings. And, it, and then his own and his commented, you know, we do say, magen semjen All sentient beings is my old mother. And not, pagen semjen Pagen, pagen, pa means father, and gen means old. Ma, gen, ma, old mother. But he said, the connotation is totally different. If you say, pagen semjen tapje, dewadan dewadan May all sentient beings 
as old geezers achieve happiness and causes of happiness. Because the phrase pagin, old, old father, has the connotation of old, uh, old geezer. Exactly that. As an old geezer. Geezer means an old fungi. <laughs> an old guy. That's an old geezer. I'm, I can do a pretty good imitation. I'm, I'm getting very close. <laughs> so that brings out the wrong connotation. So not all sentient beings is my old geezer, but oh, my dear old mom. Good old mom. Like that. So, but that sense of connectedness and the sense of identity with as my mother, not somebody else's mother, right? So as we venture into empathetic joy, we're now equally kind of like this ripple going out and covering a pond, sending out this wave of empathetic joy, taking delight in others' joys, successes, and virtues equally, and with that sense of connectedness, that they're really of the same family. We're all of the same family. So now instead of having the nuclear family over here, or even the extended family over here, my family, my clan, my village, which is very, very common throughout most of human history, but then isolated from then everybody else being other, it's now breaking that down, the whole self and other being dissolved and into all sentient beings, that sense of minus extending out. So in the shamatha, on the shamatha vipassana track, coming in and questioning, questioning, questioning whether there's anything that we can realistically identify with is mine. And then on the, and that leading to vipassana, and then the four measurable track leading to bodhicitta, extending outwards to everyone being mine everyone being of my family, my mother, my father in this or in past lives, and having a sense of intimacy with every sentient being. So there's a nice balance there of total negation of grasping to a benevolent omnipresence of grasping, but without reification. So, I think especially again, and I'll end on this note, in this modern world where there does tend to be such an intense focus on the negative, very, very strong. And then, and then, no surprise, big strong emphasis on low self-esteem, self-hatred, blah, blah, blah. That whole syndrome where these two, they go hand in hand. Recalling William James's wonderful aphorism, for the moment what we attend to is reality. Insofar as just in our ordinary ruminations, our thinking, our pondering throughout the course of the day, insofar as we keep on gravitating back to the negative, the negative in our own personal histories, the negative in terms of our own qualities, modes of behavior, the negative and negativities the, of other people's behavior, of the world situation and so forth, then that's the reality we will live in because that's the reality we're attending to. But the really wonderful news from the teachings on the Four Immeasurables is that that's not imposed upon us. We are not forced, not by the media or anybody else, we're not forced to be living in a world that is just saturated by negativity. And that is, there's plenty of, there's no question, there's plenty of material to work with. If you want to focus on the negative, you don't have to look very hard. It rises up to meet us very easily, internally and externally. But then as we see, with the wisdom of the four measurables, and here especially the third one, of empathetic joy, we can deliberately focus on the positive, taking delight in our own virtues, our own successes and joys, and those of others as well, and as we attend to it, it becomes real. And that's the way we construct the reality that we are and the reality that we experience around us. But we really are co-creators. We can really take responsibility for the kind of world we feel that we're living in. And it has everything to do with what we're attending to. 
So we can either just let our attention be grabbed and carried away by one thing after another, like a dog that has no owner. It just goes here and goes there and goes there. Or we can take the reins of our of this wild steed of our own attention, direct it where we will, and live in the kind of world we choose to live in. The latter has a great deal more freedom, possibility to it. So empathetic joy. At all times throughout history, very useful. But if there was ever a phase of history where it was really what the doctor ordered, where it was really important to balance out don't get mired down in depression and cynicism and low self-esteem and contempt and despair and so forth. If there is ever a time, probably now's it. This is really a good time to balance that out, to bring some lightness to our vision of the world. So, find a comfortable position. Let's jump in. Take satisfaction in letting your awareness slip into and fill the space of the body as you settle it in its natural state, releasing the respiration into its natural rhythm. Calm and soothe your mind for a little while by way of mindfulness of breathing.
Then send your awareness out on an expedition. Direct your attention outwards to someone you love and care about. Who often embodies a sense of good cheer, a lightness, a joyfulness of being. Attend closely. Let this person's reality become your reality. With each outbreath, arouse that which comes in any case naturally, a sense of delight, a sense of gladness. As if you're breathing out your own joy and letting it mingle with the joy of the other person. Embracing this person with shared happiness. Then let your attention rove, perhaps to a person with whom you do not identify so strongly, but to someone else who has recently experienced some felicity, some good fortune, perhaps some young couple who have just gotten married and taking delight in each other's company, their relationship. Could be someone who's recently ordained as a monk or nun, taking delight in this new way of life. Let your attention rove and attend to those who are experiencing some hedonic well-being, some good fortune. Fortune smiles upon them. Breathe out and share the delight with them. 
caring for them, sharing their delight. Now, having taken delight in others' worldly well-being, hedonic well-being, now focus more on the causes of happiness. Those who are devoting themselves to a life of virtue, focus first within the domain of ethics. Those who truly seek to avoid inflicting harm upon others. those who act with kindness, with generosity, with altruism, doing their very best to make the world a better place, to alleviate the suffering, enhance the joys of others. We may focus on individuals, of communities within organizations. Focus closely, attend closely, and with each out-breath take delight
now attend to another dimension of virtue. As we move through the three higher trainings of ethics, samadhi, and wisdom, within samadhi, of course, not just the development of single-pointed attention, but the cultivation of the heart and mind. All those who are devoting themselves to cultivating authentic motivation, benevolence, bodhicitta, the four immeasurables, cultivating greater mental balance, cultivating the inner causes of well-being, of genuine happiness. With each out-breath, take delight in those who are exploring the depths of what it means to be human, exploring our inner resources, and sharing their insights and experiences experiences with others. Then attend to those who are devoting themselves to the deepest dimension of spiritual practice, with the motivation of seeking liberation, of awakening. The greatest good, the deepest sense of well-being, with each out-breath take delight in those who are on the path and those who have come to the culmination of the path. share their insights with others.
These are the lights of the world to bring us all out of darkness. With each outbreath, take delight. And release all objects and appearances to the mind. Let your awareness come utterly to rest in the simple experience of being aware of being aware.
Oh, that's a, I get caught up on my mail. Oh, thank you. Yes, indeed. There's Eric. Eric, on the first evening, you might probably heard everybody introduce themselves, but you came in a wee bit late for very good reasons. Would you kindly introduce yourself? Thank you for that. Hello, everyone. I'm Eric. I'm from Sweden. And uh, I've been here uh, one week now. <laughs> I hope you noticed me. <laughs> I noticed noticed most of you, I think. So, even though I haven't uh, said hello to everyone, so uh, yeah, here I am. Jolly good. <laughs> there you are. Thank you, Eric. Thank you. Oh yeah. Could you talk about? That's an interesting question. Could you talk a, about a little about? How to cultivate humility without falling into self-contempt and low self-esteem. And how to cultivate confidence without falling into arrogance and pride. Oh, yeah. Good. Good, good. Interestingly enough, I've never heard of meditation in all of the tremendous array. This is from Diego, by the way. Uh, given the tremendous array of meditations within the Buddhist tradition, especially multiple ones, Tibetan and Theravada and so forth, never heard of a humility meditation. Never heard of that. It's not to say there shouldn't be one, but I've just never heard of it. But if there were one, and I were doing it, (laughs) I could imagine, you know, either trying to do it and then failing and feeling really bad about it. Or succeeding at it and feeling, damn, I'm good. I'm really good at this humility business. I'm probably better than most. (laughs) So, no, it's a perfectly legitimate question. Um, One can bring a lot of wisdom to it. And that is... I won't tell the story of my first encounter with His Holiness and all of that. You've probably read it or heard it. I've told it so many times. But that's what I was grappling with very, very early on. So, so you know, how, as you're cultivating, just without going into the story, and I've said it so many times, but the principle of it is when we're coming into Dharma, a major reason to come in is to overcome our destructive tendencies, mental afflictions, and so forth, and to cultivate virtues. In other words, to become better people. But as we become better people, how can we not be aware that we're better people and then look down on other people? (laughs) Which is then arrogance, which means how did I become a better person and become a worse person at the same time? (laughs) And so... How is it? Certainly within the Buddhist context, but outside definitely as well. But I'm just very familiar with the Buddhist context. That within context of Buddhism, those like Balangonda, Balangonda Ananda Maitreya, really brilliant mind, incredible erudition, a superb monk, tremendously benevolent, extremely good teacher, renowned throughout the land as just being one of the, the top, the greatest monk, Mahanayakatera, you know, teachers in the whole country. And I lived with him for some months. And how could a man that would have so many really good reasons for feeling superior? Because he really was. 
And he wasn't deluded. He wasn't unaware that he had such erudition. He, he's practicing Satipatthana all the time. How could he not be aware that compassion is arising, that mental afflictions are not arising, that generosity is arising, that his, that his ethics is... How could he not be aware of that? And how can he not be aware that his ethics is better than most and that knowledge is better than most and so forth? And in the midst of all of that, come as no surprise, we're one of the most humble people I've ever met. No. So how is that the case? Or my own teacher, Gyatrathambachi, if there's any of all my lamas that I would say this one might have achieved the absolute perfection of humility, it would be Gyatrathambachi. Not to say that any of my other lamas have arrogance. I've never seen it. But with Gyatrathambachi, it's, it's almost like I don't think it's possible to be more humble than you. Because here he is, born as a tulku, trained by some of the most extraordinary yogis, Dujum Rinpoche, two other in- incarnations of Dujum Lingba, Naso Tulku and, and Kunzanyima. Kunzanyima. And then other, other great teachers as well. And devoted years in retreat in Tibet, has been teaching in the West well, for 40 years, so many hundreds of students, multiple centers and so forth. Marvelous teacher. And yet, he is always, not only, he's just taking the lowest position. He never refers to any good quality of himself. He said, don't become like me. Don't become like me. When I die, I'm just going to be pooping with fear. You know, rainbow body, you know, clear light of death, forget that. I'm just going to be pooping with fear. So don't follow my example. Follow the opposite of what I do. You know, he's saying this all the time. He said, when I sit on a drama box, I'm an empty llama sitting on an empty box. There's nothing. So I have nothing. Don't be like me. I'm just an old man with a hole between my two teeth. You know, like, oh, I'm sorry it turned out so badly. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you took him seriously. And so, but then, of course, the giveaway. And Oh, again, Lam Rimba. Another one, but again, Jumbo Mondu. Some At some point early on, I had, I don't know, I must have had a little fit of delusion or something, because I asked him whether he would share with me any of his insights or experiences. And he looked at me with this radiant, happy smile, like like Anisamba's smile right now, just like cracking his face open. I have no realizations at all. <laughs> no realizations. And you see, wow, is he happy about having no realizations. <laughs> he must be even happier if he had some realizations. He is really happy having no realizations, you know. And so, that lightness, where does it come from? Because clearly these people are very aware of their own virtues. To not be would be an exercise in ignorance. That's not part of Buddhist practice. So they're aware. Are they aware of other people's mental afflictions? Are they aware that there are monks who do not keep their vows very well? Yogis who are really more after gold and money and reputation than they are after realization. Are they aware of that? Sure they are. How can they not be? They're not stupid. So in the midst of all of that, where does the humility come from? Because humility is actually genuine. But I don't think any of these, as far as I know, not Gen Chamawandu, Gen Lam Rimba, Gyatur Machis, Dalai Lama, I don't know that any of them sat down and said, okay, today I'm going, to, I'm going to be cultivating humility. I doubt it. Never heard of it. I don't even know what they would do. Right? They're just doing everything else. And so, when we attend to and become aware of our own virtues. Do so with wisdom and see that these virtues arose in dependence upon causes and conditions, none of which were an independently existent I. None of them. 
So I'm moderately fluent. There are quite a number of Westerners now who are more fluent than I am in Tibetan. But I'm still moderately fluent. Uh, so how did that happen? So I could be proud of that. You know. Although I am aware there are other Westerners who really speak, speak and, and read and so forth much better than I. That's, that's not humility. That's just reality. And so I think the real answer here is it just comes back to being realistic. When I look at that one virtue, okay, I can read and speak Tibetan and I can understand it. But there are a bunch of non-Tibetans who do better than I. And then almost all Tibetans do better than I. You know, almost all of them. And then there's some who do less. So I'm just within a crowd. There are people above me, people below me. But wherever I am placed in that, I do speak and read Tibetan better than some Westerners. And I read Tibetan better than some Tibetans who are illiterate, like that. So how do I place myself? Well, okay, I place myself there, 65%. I get a 65. 35 above, 64 below, whatever. 34 above. How did that happen? Causes and conditions. Causes and conditions. When I first wanted to learn, there was Kushu Zongzirinbochi at the University of Göttingen. Utterly selfless, incredibly humble man doing his very best to help me in any way he could, and what I wanted was language, so he taught me language. Without him, how would I know anything? He taught me He taught me the alphabet. Then went down to Switzerland, there was the Sakya Lama. Yeah, He's like a mother, he's like a mother in a man's body. He's so, there's such an incredible sweetness about him. You'd really think he's a woman. But in a good way. There was nothing weird or sicky about it. It was just, it was just so nurturing, so sweet, you know. You, 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 I've never really quite met a man like that that was so nurturing. Just warm like a grandma. More like a grandma. Like a really sweet grandma. And so helpful. So helpful. That. And then off, and then, you know, the story goes on and so there's one kindness. And then off, invited into a Tibetan household. Well, everybody spoke Tibetan, nobody spoke English. Well, that was pretty cool. And they charged me $12 a month for room and board. That was awfully kind. And then they found me a teacher. And so, yeah, how could I not be fluent in Tibetan when I have that much help? So for me, out of that, to say, I speak Tibetan. Are you simply crazy or what? If you're going to hold yourself superior after receiving all that kindness for other people, you're going to say, I? Come on, get real here. That's, that's absurd. Absurd. Even whatever intelligence I have, well, part, part of that has to be genetics. My parents are pretty smart. You know, so thank you for your genes. Appreciate that. I had nothing to do with it, and so it's reality. It's just bringing a realistic view to pratita samuppada. Whatever virtues there are, they're all arising in dependence upon causes and conditions. There they are, and there's no grounds for any pride at all. Whether it's being a fine architect, whatever it is, it's all coming by causes and conditions. And so you see, the issue of self-contempt, self, and low self-esteem doesn't even come up. It's not even an issue that's raised. But it's kind of a lightness. And then, really, as His Holiness told me in our first meeting, it all boils down to gratitude. That whatever, whatever virtues, whatever goodness we have in our life, it came from something that is not I. As I, as an autonomous, self-existent me. All the goodness in my life came from not that. And therefore, there's no foundation for arrogance. There's no reality base for arrogance. Because arrogance is rooted in the delusion of I am separate, autonomous, me, somebody special. And so likewise with confidence. It's confidence in the qualities and arrogance and pride are all about me. 
I am better, I am superior, I, 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 all rooted in delusion, whereas confidence is something that is reality-based. It's reality-based. That is, are you up to it? Am I capable of teaching the four measurables without deluding people? I believe so. I believe so. How? I had really wonderful teachers. And I've encountered wonderful writing, done a little bit of practice. And so that's that. So the other two don't even come up. That's what the boil, it boils down to. And yet there is no special meditation I've ever encountered for developing confidence. Never heard of one. Confidence meditation. And I've never heard of humility meditation either. But what I do find is that I've, as I attend to, observe so many practitioners who are further along the path, greater experience, deeper insight, greater compassion, and so forth, than I, they all tend to have confidence, and they all tend to be humble. So, something like that. I don't know. But I have thought if I ever tried to cultivate humility, I'd be really proud of it. <laughs> so, when my mind is filled with thoughts, and quite distracted, it sounds like a song. When my mind is filled with thoughts and quite distracted. But then I direct my attention to the space at the mind, probably of the mind. And whatever arises within it, without distraction, without grasping, these thoughts, however, seem to disappear. Have they simply dissolved back into the space of the mind, since I am no longer grasping onto them? Or am I just not detecting them? At times when thinking analytically is important, even useful, how does one do so without distraction, without grasping? Can they? Do they need to? <laughs> Thank you, Jason. I've enjoyed your question. It's a good question. So, when we start in the practice of settling the mind in this natural state, it's not true for everyone, but it's true for many people. That as we bring the full glare, like a lighthouse, as we bring the full glare, the intensity of the beam of our awareness to the space of the mind, then the thoughts and so forth act like cockroaches when you walk into the kitchen and turn on the light. And they all slip under the refrigerator. I know it well from my own experience. The, 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 the glare is too intense. And so just kind of like, boom. And then, so when we're practicing mindfulness of breathing, and we're trying to focus on the sensations of the nostrils, then it's like the lights are out and all the cockroaches come out. And they're all talking and talking and talking, having big conversations, blah, 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 in breath, out, blah, 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 blah. All the cockroaches of the mind have big conversations, throwing a party, you know, striptease, the whole thing. Cockroach to tree, though. It's really nasty. <laughs> and then we turn, and then we say, oh, okay, enough is enough, I can't stand it. You know, I can't even attend to the breath. There's so much noise in my mind. All the cockroaches chattering away. Okay, let's try settling the mind. And up, all the cockroaches vanish. <laughs> they all pipe down, disappear. Okay, now nothing to do. Go back to the breath. Okay, all the cockroaches come on. <laughs> so this has been happening for years, for centuries, for centuries, yeah. 
And you may have heard, have you, Jason, have you heard the, 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 the parable of the, of the bashful maiden? Okay, then there's at least one person here who's not heard the parable of the bashful maiden, which means I have to tell it. Okay? This comes from the Mahamudra tradition, so it's at least a thousand years old, and it shows that your experience has been going on for at least a millennium. Okay? And not just by Westerners or weird guys with strange beards and so forth, but, you know, by ordinary people. And that is the bashful maiden is imagine that in olden times when there were still, there were, were still bashful maidens, <laughs> before they became extinct, <laughs> that there's a young, a young lady out walking on the village plaza and as she's walking and mind your own business, then some young man who was a ladies man, they call them players nowadays. In my grandfather's time, they called them rakes. Rakes. Remember rakes? <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> lady killers, they call them all kinds of nasty names. But a guy who's really keen on the ladies. So some young player comes out and he sees this beautiful young lady walking along the plaza. And as soon as he sees her, his eyes just go into hyper-intense focus. You know, if it were a cartoon, his eyes would go... Bong, 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 and just... <laughs> and so this young lady would feel the intensity of his interest. And she, being a bashful maiden, as soon as she felt that she was under such scrutiny, then she would just disappear because she's very bashful, right? And so that's, that's an old parable. And not even a parable, it's more like just an image. But the idea is that your thoughts are the bashful maidens, and your awareness is the player who attends to them with, with such intensity that it's rather like looking at snowflakes through a magnifying glass with the sun right over your shoulder. <laughs> Gone as soon as you see it. And so since this practice is one, of attending not only to the space of the mind and all the melted snowflakes, but all the events that are taking place, then the whole, the wait for this to really get rolling, and so that you can attend to thoughts and images and so forth, is to be relaxing more and more deeply, bring a real soft touch. So, if this young player were really smart, as soon as he saw the woman, or the woman he's attracted to, he would just be glancing out at the corner of his eye. So he doesn't scare her away. <laughs> then she would, you know, then she might hang out and you could enjoy her beauty longer. But when you go, <laughs> of course she runs away. You know? <laughs> he used to look like a weirdo. <laughs> so it's overall just developing a lighter and lighter touch, more and more relaxation. There's another image from the classic tradition of the ambience, the feel, the quality of your awareness as you attend to the mind. And so since you're a man, then I'll give the, put it a male gender, like an old man watching other people's children play. Okay, now I can really relate to that, because I like watching kids play. I like especially watching other people's children play when their parents are there, so I don't, I don't have to worry about it. You know, the mother's right there, the child falls, starts crying, kids start fighting, whatever. The parents are there, they'll take care of it. So I'm an old guy sitting on a bench watching other people's children play. And whatever happens, there's just nothing for me to do. They have their cell phones there. If they need to phone 911, they're ready. So there's just absolutely, I may as well be a statue, you know. I'm just not, no matter what happens, they don't need me. I'm an old guy, not part of their family. I'm nothing. I'm just, you know. But I can still enjoy watching little kids play Little League Baseball. I, I, I haven't had any time for that for a while. But it's fun. These little squirts, you know, that come up out of your knee. Trying to hit the ball. It's really fun watching. But I don't care who wins. You know, the guys with the blue caps and the red caps. Like, how can I care less? It's fun watching them play. 
And so it's that kind of very, it's attentive, it's interested, it's kind of enjoying it, but it has no investment in it. No sense of mine, or I hope this, I hope that. Just that light, light touch. Now, when the thoughts do vanish, where do they go? Well, that's for you to find out by observing closely, rather than thinking about it. It it ventures more into the vipassana mode, but we don't have to avoid that indefinitely. Once in a while, you might just end a session of settling the mind with attending closely. That is, if you do, if you do, or if you're able to ascertain those on occasion, those intervals between thoughts, where there doesn't seem to be anything happening at all, and then a thought comes up, or an image comes up, just attend closely the manner in which it arose. And then the image is there, the thought is there for a while. And then after a while, even if you're practicing totally relaxed, totally cool, chilled, loose, sooner or later it's going to go away. It may play out, it may be a little phrase, it may be something like that, a lingering little video clip, whatever. But sooner or later it's going to go away. And when it does, then just watch how it vanishes. Does it, like, is it an actor? Like, does it go off stage to the right or the left? Does it withdraw into a point and pop out? Does it just kind of generally fade and then be gone? How? So that's for you to find out. Are there mental processes, thoughts and so forth, impulses, desires, emotions that are occurring but of which we are unaware on occasion? The answer is yes, from a Buddhist perspective. Now the person who brought this to general public attention recently in the 1920s and so on, was, of course, Sigmund Freud and all the activities of the subconscious. Good good insight. Insight was there for a good 2,000 years before then, but the Europeans didn't make it, so it didn't matter. Because nothing was discovered until the Europeans discovered it. Like North America, South America. But it's glad that the New World... (laughs) I really love this part. You know, the New World discovered. There were about 10 million Native Americans in North America at the time. For them, I think they thought it was the old world, and the European, the European continent was the awful world. But they be that as it may. Oh, for a very long time in the Buddhist tradition, this whole notion of balanyawa, balanyavitsukiyaba, that is, mental processes that are occurring in a, a non-conscious, a subliminal way, but still do exert a causal efficacy. So here, let's make this really practical, not metaphysical, or just joking around. And that is, as you're attending to the space of the mind, and especially you start settling in, the weeks go by, weeks go by. And then on occasion, as you're attending to the space of the mind, you're just not seeing anything. Well, attend very closely, and this is why we have that third phase of settling the mind, where we are deliberately attending to and seeking to ascertain the space of the mind, and see whether it has any characteristics. But as we scrutinize, as we carefully attend to, enhancing the vividness of awareness as we closely attend to that space of the mind, then observe closely whether there might not be some events that were either so subtle that you hadn't noticed them before, or so fleeting that you had not noticed them before. And so in this way, enhance the qualitative vividness of your attention, so you can actually discern mental processes that were previously so subtle you weren't even aware of them, or, as you enhance the temporal vividness of your awareness, you're able to ascertain impulses, images, thoughts, and so forth, that are so fleeting, like one-tenth of a second, that you hadn't noticed them. They were just, what? And you didn't even see them. 
But Songaba, when he's speaking about this practice, keep on coming back to him, he speaks in the context of shamatha, as you're observing, he said, you may, as you get really rather subtle, you may observe a thought that is on the verge of emerging and then doesn't. You know? Like any of you have watched a still pool of water, a pond, very glassy surface, and see a fish that comes right towards the surface, but the fin doesn't quite break through. You just see the water rise. But then the fish doesn't break the surface, and it goes down. Okay? You'll see something of a swelling, and of a movement that never gets articulated, never blossoms into a thought or an image, but just a, a raising up and then going down. Some impulse that, and then just withdraws back in. You know? So that gets a bit subtle. So enjoy. Enjoy. Ole. Last one that is written. Oh, this is very short. This is from Eric. How does mindfulness of feelings, the practice, relate to settling the mind in its natural state? So, very good. Uh, that can be read in a couple of ways. Clearly, the, set my, the practice of settling the mind in its natural state certainly does include mindfulness of feelings, because feelings are arising in the domain of the mind. Feelings as in pleasure, pain, indifference, or feelings as in emotions, which are not just pleasure, pain, indifference, but anger, sadness, surprise, fear, and so forth. So emotions, emotions are arising. Now, one point, since this word feeling is so rather vague in English, and I think in other European languages, gefühle and so forth, it's so, but I have a feeling of a tingling in my knee or a scratch, scratch in my belly, whatever, that's a feeling. Well, so the, the word covers a lot of territory, right? It is important in the practice of settling the mind in its natural state to recognize that we're attending only to what's taking place in the space of the mind and not to its somatic correlates. So it's been often commented by Antonio Damasio and others in the mind sciences that whatever emotion we experience, at least in the waking state, there must be some somatic correlation. You have you experience fear and you feel a tensing in the gut. You feel love and you feel a warmth in the heart, and so forth. And so that may vary. I'm sure there's a lot of truth to that. But as you're settling the mind in this natural state, you do not attend. You don't, you do not deliberately focus your attention on anything in the somatic field the tactile field, but only on the mental, right? And so in the settling the mind in its natural state, whatever feeling of mental feeling of pleasure, pain, indifference, grist for the mill, and also feelings, feelings of anger, feelings of sadness, feeling of surprise, and so forth, fear, anxiety, those are feelings, emotions. Whatever arises, one simply attends to them, observes their nature. So in one's, one way then, feeling the mindfulness of feelings completely fits within of mental feelings not somatic feelings, completely fits in within the practice of settling the mind in its natural state. But you may have meant here mindfulness feelings as in the second of the four close applications of mindfulness. So the close application of mindfulness is called the establishment of mindfulness, foundation of mindfulness, placement of mindfulness, all of them. Foundation I don't like much. I don't think it's that accurate. But placement, establishment, application, they're all good. The verb is pretty simple. So now when we're talking about the close application of mindfulness to feelings, now we're into the Pashana country. Right? In that country, in that second area of application of mindfulness, within the context of Vipassana or insight, of course that covers also physical feelings. Well, not in settling the mind, it's natural state. It covers not only feelings you feel in the body, but when you go off to eat dinner tonight. 
and you put some food in your mouth and you experience some pleasure because it's tasty food. That's a feeling. That's gustatory, gustatory related feeling, right? And so that's within the classification of mindfulness of feelings. So for all the five physical senses, that fits in. And then also mental feelings, pleasure, pain, and difference, that fits in there as well. So the second application of mindfulness covering both body and mind and the feelings that arise in those all six domains of experience, the five sensory and the mental. But now as, a, as an insight practice, here's a general rule of thumb that's often overlooked in the modern popularization of vipassana. And that is, authentic Buddhist Vipassana practice always entails some inquiry. Bare attention is not enough. Bare attention is not Vipassana. It's said, said a lot, but a lot of people can be mistaken. There's no, there's no basis for that in any Buddhist tradition. Just bare attention is, is, is Vipassana. If it were, then rodents would be practicing it a lot, you know. They... <laughs> Rodent Vipassana. Bare attention. I don't think so. And so, any practice of vipassana always entails some degree of inquiry, of a close attentiveness at question. So, for example, in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha speaks of attending closely. Actually, the verb can be translated as contemplates. One contemplates in a spirit of inquiry how feelings arise. What are the, as he says, the factors of origination? As, fact, as feelings arise in the body or in the mind, what are the factors of origination? We're back to pratyatisambhupada. Back to dependent origination. What are the factors, the influences that gave rise to, that led to the emergence of a certain feeling of pleasure, pain, and difference in the mind? What are the factors of disillusion? How is it that that feeling is not immutable and and eternal? How is it that it dissolves away, it crumbles, it dissolves? How does that occur? So there's a spirit of inquiry there. These are the Buddha's words. He's not at some interpretation, let alone some 20th century, you know, twist on it. His own words. Attend closely to the factors of origination, the factors of disillusion. Attend to feelings inwardly, attend to feelings outwardly, attend to feelings inwardly and outwardly. There's a whole spirit of inquiry there, of understanding what are the nature of feelings. Are they permanent or are they impermanent? Are they by nature pleasurable or are they not? Are they by nature I and mine or are they not? So all of these are built in, very much so. Well, these are a whole array of questions that are designed to yield insights that liberate insights that cut at the root of the whole range of mental afflictions. And the simple practice of settling the mind in its natural state is really much more one of bare attention. Discerning, intelligent, not labeling, not classifying, not reacting, so all of that good, it's bare attention. At the same time, this needs to be said, and it comes from Dujum Lingba, the only source I've seen this said. So he teaches this, and this this is all laid out in, in this book that I came out with called Stilling the Mind. It's his teachings, with hopefully something it clarifies and doesn't obscure. But he said in this practice, which he calls taking awareness and appearances as the path. Nangrik, appearances, nangrik, appearances and awareness as the path. Nangrik, lamdikyawa. Different name, but the same practice, settling the mind. Oh, he says, so practice is exactly the same. But then he makes this interesting comment that through this simple practice of just being aware of whatever comes up, Sustaining that awareness without mindfulness, without, without, without distraction, without grasping. He said, insights pertaining to the four applications of mindfulness may arise spontaneously. Okay? So in that would suggest there, there can be some overlap there. Bear in mind that this all has to do with 
to use the Buddhist imagery, how little dust there is on our eyes. Right? And so in one of the, the shortest and most powerful discourses the Buddha ever gave to this wandering ascetic named Bahia, who was desperate to receive teachings from, his, from the Buddha, he, he first accosted him when the Buddha was out on alms rally. He said, Lord, please give me teachings. And, said, and the Buddha said, I'm busy. Come back later. I'm on my alms rally. The guy was really eager. He comes again and again. The Buddha was done. He said, get to me later. Cool. Chill. And then he comes to the third time. And then the time was right. And the Buddha gave him about one paragraph. One paragraph. The essence of it was, in the seen let there be just the seen. In the heard let just the heard. In the felt, somatically felt, just the felt. In the mentally perceived, let there be just the mentally perceived. And by so doing, you'll see there is no thing there. That you'll see there is no thing here. There's no one inside, autonomous. By seeing there is no one in here, you'll see there is no thing out there. By seeing there is no one in here, no thing out there, you'll be released and experience the cessation of suffering. And he did. He heard the Dharma talk. And by the time it was finished, he was an arhat. Which is a very good thing, because just days after that, he was gored by a bull and died. So the instructions were really, frankly, bare attention. There was no elaboration. There was no, there was nothing more to it than that. Just let there be what is presenting itself to you without the elaboration. But this man was so ripe. He was so ripe that simply those teachings then removed the veils of his ignorance. And he not only realized nirvana, but he became an arha. Okay? So if one is very ripe, then bare attention may be sufficient. Who can say? If one is very ripe, like Naropa, then being whacked in the face with a sandal may be enough. As Tilopa smacked him in the face with a sandal and he gained profound realization. I have often wanted to do that. I mean, I, I'd really like to <laughs> see whether it works, you know. I don't know whether it was a special sandal, but I've got two sandals out there, they're just ready to go, so if anybody wants to line up and be whacked. But there it is. It all depends on how, how ripe you are. Okay? So good. So we have a few more minutes. Anything from the floor to see? Let's we'll start with Rosa. Thank you, dear. What if you, what if you're observing your mind and a feeling in a thought comes up? Mm -hmm. a, a feeling tends to stay longer. Yeah. Yeah, what do you observe? Whatever's there right now. But both are? If they're both there right now, both. Yeah. <laughs> it keeps it really simple. Uh, the word freshness, jemba, jemba in Tibetan, the word freshness comes up. And that is, no moment is ever a repetition of the preceding one. Or I think it wasn't it Mark Twain, I think it was Mark Twain that said, history never repeats itself, but it does sometimes rhyme. So some similarities. So I think it's very actually a very good insight. And so whatever's coming up, even if it's thinking about the same thing for the tenth time, you know, rumination, getting caught in the rut, well, it rhymes. That is, what's going through the mind right now is very similar. It's quite similar. It rhymes with something that's gone through the mind in the past, but it's not the same. This is an unprecedented situation. And so it's coming up in an unprecedented context, which means it's unprecedented, which means it's totally fresh. So whatever is arising right there without tracing it back, without getting caught up, carried away, it's just fresh, fresh, fresh. It's just kind of like staccato 
flow of freshness. And whatever's arising, you just attend to that. Whatever it is, feeling, thought, whatever it is, keep it simple. The image I like most, I haven't shared in this retreat yet, but it's a nice image. And that is of a falcon, like a kestrel. A kestrel is a very small falcon, facing into the wind. It's called kiting. You must have seen it. Various birds do it. They face into the wind with very little movement of their feathers. They remain stationary with respect to the ground, but they're very sensitive to the flow of the wind. And with little adjustments, they're not slipped in. They don't slip forward. They don't slip backwards. And so likewise, you, your awareness kites into the wind. Whatever feelings, images, memories, thoughts, fantasies, emotions, whatever comes up, you're facing right into the wind at the present moment. Whatever comes up, just attend to it. Without being swept into the past, without being sucked into an imaginary future, just hovering right there, holding on to nothing. So the it's not like a falcon holding on to a telephone wire or a branch. You know, you have to some, of course you're stationary. You're holding on to something stationary. You're not holding on to anything, but just by that sensitivity, just in, in mid-air, you're remaining stationary in the present moment. Something like that. Oh yeah, Carla, our outside yogi. There she is. If you ever have, if you ever have a question, you can always write it. Sounded good. <laughs> no, she didn't have her hand up. I'm not trying. I don't don't mean to put her on the spot. I'm just saying that even though her body is outside, her spirit is with us. Good, good. Anything else coming up? Yes, Kay. We'll, we'll get the microphone coming to you. How I worked at uh, awareness of awareness today was very different than what I did last night. And mm-hmm. I was... Uh, I actually mounted the whole the experience of uh, releasing and inversion on the breath for the for all of my sessions uh-huh. today. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've had this question, how can I know the breath is in its natural rhythm while I'm observing it? Because if I'm observing it, is it changing? Mm-hmm. But what I did notice, what I did start to happen was that question and you asked us, what did it feel like to be the agent? Yeah. And I had a pretty, very, very subtle distinction between being an agent and allowing an interaction between the body and the air. Yeah. Yeah. And it was so subtle that uh, I actually felt like I was going for refuge at, a, at some uh-huh. point. Yeah. You know, yeah. because I do, I do we, know. we say, uh, I go for refuge to the Dakas Dakinis, the Dharma protectors and guardians who have the eye of pristine awareness. And it just felt um, that there was something there that I could pursue and really investigate. Um, <clears throat> I also had this feeling of 
why Tibetan Buddhists have the mind and the chest because yeah. it started to it's, there started to be a really strong sensation there because the breath was going out. I mean, there's a point when it goes out where it almost stops and then it comes in. Yeah. And uh, there is this observing: am I am I influence is the agent influencing it, or is it just part of one thing? Right. If you have a classroom full of children and the teacher hasn't come in yet, and the teacher just comes into the room and doesn't do anything, just sits down, does the teacher's presence influence the children? Without that teacher saying anything, Yes, of course, the sheer presence does, one way or another. So, the sheer presence of your awareness of the breathing is bound to have some kind of influence. Right? So there it is. Let us kind of assume, assume that. It's very much like in quantum mechanics. It's a very simple theme, and everybody knows it. It's not a mystical theme. Is the, in quantum mechanics, the sheer act of measurement always influences that which you're measuring, and you can never measure something independent of your system of measurement. That is, that which you're measuring and your system of measurement are always entangled. In quantum mechanics, that's ubiquitous truth. Right? And yet quantum mechanics is the most success, successful branch of physics in the whole of physics. It's been tremendously successful. But it's all entangled. The subject and object, the measured and the system of measurement, always entangled. So they've gotten used to it. But it means that what you're attending to is not something absolutely objective. Because what you're actually measuring is something that is being measured relative to your system measurement, and never something existing independently of the system measurement. It's a good metaphor. It's a good metaphor. And that is here we're working within a system. It's the system of your own mind, or body-mind system. It's an integrated system. And it does, you know, relatively speaking, have some borders to it. I mean, the skin is a pretty good border. You know? It's not absolute. Because clearly, you know, there's a lot of interchange. The body's exuding heat, so taking in, so forth and so on. But on a coarse level, the skin is a skin. So within within this integrated system of body-mind, when we start attending to something that is so profoundly interrelated to both, that is the breathing so related to the nervous system, so related to the mind, as soon as we attend to it, the sheer act of observing the breath is bound to influence it somewhat. So that said... All we seek to do is let it influence it as little as possible. A soft touch. A soft touch. And see where that takes us. And likewise, coming right back to the initial question from Jason, the sheer act of observing the mind, let alone, you know, all of the cockroaches of the mind disappearing, but even if they don't disappear, well, the sheer act of observing thoughts, let alone emotions, my goodness, and desires, does that influence of the emotion or desire if you really start attending to it closely? But also the more objective features or appearances that arise of internal dialogue, chit-chat, mental images, are they influenced by the fact of our being aware of them? Of course they are. Of course they are. But the, act, the, the practice then is to let the touches be as light as possible. Light as possible. Just, again, and we'll end on this note, 
Let your body be still like a mountain, your awareness still like space. That's a phrase that comes directly from this practice. Awareness still like space. And so that it doesn't move. It doesn't move. I said it, I'll end on this note. And that is one of the synonyms for sentient being. Sentient being in Tibetan is semjian, one who has a mind. But a word that's used synonymously with that is mroa. Doa. Doa literally means one who's going. One who's going. So we're about to go to the dining hall, and then we'll go there, and we'll go there. And why are we going? Why are we going anywhere? Which is another way of phrasing, why are we doing anything? But often the doing entails going. Where are we going, and why are we going? We don't want suffering, so we're trying to go away from it. We do want happiness, and there's food over there. So we're going there. Right? Not to the garbage dump, there's stuff there too, but that's kind of like where you want to go away from. And so we're going, going, going. And we're in pursuit of happiness and wanting to go away from suffering and its causes. And then we have this, and that's characteristic of sentient beings all across the board. We're all going someplace, right, in the pursuit of happiness. Oh. And then there's the term nirvana. Nirvana. Nir is a negation, not. And vana means going. You achieve nirvana, and you're not going. So, going and not going. So that's a good linear trajectory from samsara to nirvana. In samsara, you're going, 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 around in circles. Until you find the path, the marga, and then you're going, going, going towards nirvana, and you get to nirvana, and having arrived at the destination, you're no longer going, and therefore it's nirvana. Not going. Right? That's a good old flat-out trajectory from here to there. And then Dzogchen, then Rigpa, pristine awareness, is free of all conceptual elaborations, including the eight. There are eight conceptual elaborations, of which Rigpa, pristine awareness, Dhammaka is completely free, primordially free. And I won't go through all of them now, but I'll just say two of them. Coming and going. Rigpa is free of coming and going. But it's also the one taste of samsara and nirvana, non-duality. So it's beyond coming and going, and it's beyond staying, for that matter. It's beyond, beyond. Something like that. Because I don't know what I'm talking about. But the words are very good. So, enjoy your dinner. I'll see you tomorrow morning.